listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golseth we are continuing our leadership series today with bishop jameson hardy we'll do that in just a moment thanks to concordia university wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon joining us today the reverend dr jameson hardy bishop of the english district of the lutheran church missouri synod he's also author of pastoral leadership shepherding and caring for god's people from concordia publishing house pastor hardy welcome back to the coffee hour Great to see you. I'm looking forward to digging into this chapter because we're talking about financial matters today. And Mm. I'm a student in a program on business skills for church workers, Mm -hmm. for faith-based organizations. So I'm excited about this because I enjoyed reading this chapter and thought, oh, wow, this really pertains to my class. I'm going to have lots of points that I like points to make in my class when we get to this in a few months. So thanks for writing a chapter that's going to be really helpful to me in a few months in my program. I appreciate it. There you go. Uh, so, so let's start off with the role of money in, in leadership. What does one's understanding of money have on their role as a leadership? How is it significant in their role as a leader and particularly pastoral leaders? Yeah, this is one of those topics that I think, well, more than I think, it it is a reality that a lot of pastors get real testy and and want to be insistent that finances are lay leadership responsibilities and not pastoral responsibilities. And and I've had that said to me more than once throughout my career by colleagues, brothers, and friends. But my contention is that like every other issue in the spiritual life of a pastor or a congregation, finances is actually a spiritual matter. And so the health and wellness of a congregation financially is an important task that must be undertaken as a spiritual concern. And I think if it's looked at that way, it becomes less offensive to theologians and really puts it in the proper light. I mean, finances, there are so many biblical examples of, of how finance is important. But as I say at the beginning of the chapter, when you have a mission, if you don't have the resources to fund that mission, uh, it's going to be very difficult. And I think we, we should be very attuned to that biblical New Testament adage, you know, the, the wise man counts the cost before he builds the building. That's a money issue, right? Uh, you don't just dive in headlong and build the building. So I, I, I just I think there's a huge overlapping umbrella type understanding of finance when it comes to theological importance in the life of the church and a pastor. So what? Why is it not enough to just teach biblical stewardship, preach about it? Why is that not enough for a pastor to just be doing that part of it? Well. For me, I've always lived by the premise, and I I say this in other chapters in the book, you know, you don't ask people to do things you're not willing to do yourself if you're a leader. And that that premise is not only something that I feel strongly about, it's proven throughout history and time. It's proven in the case of Jesus himself. You know, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does he say? There's no greater love than this than to give your life for a friend. And there he's on Calvary's cross. So, I mean, a pastor 
who understands the importance of finance, leads in being fiscally sound, and urges their congregation to be fiscally sound, is, I think, going to be the total package when it comes to finance. To your question, I don't think it's enough to just teach and preach about it. I think, you know, when you get installed as a church worker in Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, specifically a pastor, one of the promises you make is that you will lead a godly life, right? And and part of a godly life is being a good steward, and that's a financial component of stewardship. It's also a time and a talents component. But I, I think that's the key right there, Sarah. That's the key. We minimize finances, but we, we raise up time and talents, and we shove treasures down. And yet, in the biblical sense, they're all three equals. Stewardship of time, talents, and treasures, there's an equality there that too many theologians minimize finance. And so that's why I think it's important uh, to be much more attuned to this than just preaching and teaching it. So in this chapter, you give us a nice, helpful lesson on some of these financial terms and concepts pastoral leaders and other leaders really should should understand that would be helpful to them in terms of being sound leaders. So you want to walk us through some of those terms that you think are important or concepts that you think are important important for pastoral yeah. leaders to understand? Yeah, there's a lot, actually, but a few of them that I think it really starting off at the, at the very beginning of the list in the book. Um, what is the congregational asset? You know, to, to even understand the word asset, um, you know, are those items that the congregation has? Uh, the idea of assets um, tend to be, in many pastors' minds, the cash on hand, right? Either in a CD a savings account, a checking account, but but that's not the totality of assets. And and I think one of the things I put in the book is the separation between current assets and fixed assets, along with the idea of the using of those assets and leveraging those assets to be profitable for you. I mean, just a quick example. Um, I have a lot of congregations that historically have had schools in their buildings, very large buildings, and the, the building is an asset. And I, I was walking through a congregation here recently, and they were asking me what I thought about how they could utilize their building. Well, I presented them a, a plan to spend a very minimal amount of money to renovate an entire floor. There was eight rooms on the floor, about 25 by 25 was each of the classrooms. And they have about 12 college students that come to the church. Well, this floor is the third floor of this wing behind the congregational sanctuary. And I told them, I said, if you put a little bit of money into this, they had, a, they had one room that was kind of an open kind of area that had a stove and a sink and whatnot. They could actually make dormitories for students, charge them half what the university was charging them, have the students on the campus. These are the same kids that are already coming to church on Sunday. Can you imagine the parents of these kids when they hear that? Well, listen, I can live at the church. So I laid out the entire thing. I gave them the valuations of what the rent should be. I gave them the entire program, and the pastor said, "This is not our our business or job to be in this kind of a, you know, in this kind of a, a situation." He totally shoved it off to the side and hasn't done it. Well, one of the lay people called me and was furious because they were one hundred percent sold on it. But in this case, the pastor of the church won the day, and it's just a perfect example of not understanding an asset. That building sits fallow or not used all week and for maybe one hour on a Sunday. 
And not that my idea was the only idea or even the best idea, but it was an idea that would have generated about $12,000 a month in cash. Now, just think about that for a second. A fixed asset, the building, returning passive income of around $12,000 for just a little bit of effort and marketing to the people that are already coming to church, that is to say the college students at the local college. So, I mean, this is this is one of those concepts. Another one, and I won't get too deep into this, but it's the more technical financial terms for asset allocation for those congregations that might have a portfolio of an endowment or real fixed assets that they're investing, bonds, stocks, and these kind of things. I don't know, you know, Andy, you mentioned that you're, you know, in a, in a, in a class that's dealing with some of this. I, I was floored when I started asking around how many pastors did not even know what the term balance sheet really even was. And, and again, this is a, in my opinion, a term that every pastoral leader, anybody leading an organization better know what a balance sheet is, your assets, your liabilities, and then what's left. I mean, you know that positive or negative. And and, And if you don't understand what a balance sheet is, you really got some big issues. I mean, these are just a couple examples. Uh, one of the tough ones, by the way, and I don't even profess to spend too much time on this in the book, but it's one that I had to learn over time, is if you're really getting deep into finance, the understanding of what a depreciation is when it comes to a, you know, the valuation of a, a building, especially when it comes to accounting purposes. Not that a lot of pastors really even need to worry about that, but if you got a big ministry, and I have a lot of congregations that are really big, 100, 150 employees, you know, depreciation comes into play when it comes to replacing things like computers and, you know, just these these kind of things. You know, he, he, another term that I, I spend a little bit of time on it and probably more than others is the concept of ROI, the return on investment. I, I give an example in the book of a spaghetti dinner that we did at Peace Lutheran Church in McMurray, Pennsylvania, where without getting into all the details, I'll just use some round numbers when I took over the congregation and merger, we had this spaghetti dinner every year to support the preschool. We had members donate, you know, the spaghetti, the sauce, the bread, you know, all these things. And then they would volunteer to make it. And, you know, we had the people come and pick it up. When I sat down and I added up all the amount of money that the people donated, the products they donated, and the time they spent at minimum wage, we lost three times as much as we made. Think about that for a second. Just using a minimum wage salary to an hour, or excuse me, an hourly wage to the people who volunteered. When you do that, we lost three times as much as we made. Now, once I figured that out, we stopped doing the spaghetti dinner. Those people donated the same amount of money that they did in products, and we made twice as much as we did the year before. Think about that for a second. Return on investment, the effort you're putting into something and what it gives back to you. And this is something that I believe every single pastor, every single church worker should spend time on understanding what the return on their investment is. Because oftentimes we spend a lot of time and work really hard and we get nothing in return. We have more to learn about in just a moment here on The Coffee Hour as we continue our conversation in pastoral leadership with Bishop Jameson Hardy. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. (laughs) 
At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're talking with Bishop Jameson Hardy of the English District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People. This week, we're taking a look at financial matters and why they're important. All right, you've given us a a little bit of a a, a glossary of terms to to work with in the book here, Pastor, when it comes to financial matters. You talked about ROI, return on investment. Any other terms that you want to bring up in today's conversation? You know... I guess the only other thing that I would uh, point out for church workers, but specifically pastoral leaders, is the understanding of liquidity, the ability to get access to your asset, to have the ability to have cash. And then just uh, here's a real quick example. When I was up in the parish in Pittsburgh, we had a minor loan, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 with LCEF, and we had a little bit more than that, well, probably twice as much of that in cash. And I had a member of the congregation who just continually brought up during council meetings that they wanted to pay off the mortgage. They were insistent on paying off the mortgage. We don't, you know, we have this cash. Long story short, we were paying at that time about 2.75 to 3% on that cash. But the investments that we had were paying us about four and a half. There was a financial positive arbitrage that we were able to get by keeping our cash and keeping liquidity, the ability to get access to cash. I tell this to all the congregations, including the last two weeks at the uh, pastor's conferences that I've been doing. Cash is still king. Okay, we we live in a society that is very plastic in nature. Everything is credit card driven or or charge uh, with a debit card in transaction. But cash is still king. Having the ability to have liquidity access to cash is still, in my opinion, by far the best way to handle things. Now, as interest rates rise and you look at the investment return, that arbitrage can flip to a negative arbitrage, and you never want to be in a negative arbitrage situation with cash. You always want to be in a positive arbitrage situation with cash. So that that's the only other one that I really, and I don't spend a lot of time in the book on the arbitrage understanding but I do think that this liquidity issue is a, is a big deal. How do all of these terms play into the budgeting process, dealing with a, a board of directors or a church council? How does that all play into that that process that churches go through every year to budget what, what it's going to look like for the next year? Yeah, I'll speak about this in terms of what we do at the English district on the board of directors there and work back. Because when I became the bishop of the English district, I put together in the budget presentation, which was completely abnormal to what the historical previous budget cycle had been doing, where the the bishop would just give the board the actual budget, and that was it. I gave a whole Word document with lists of assumptions, okay? And each of those assumptions were numbered to the part of the budget where it affected. And I'll just give an example. 
maybe healthcare was down this year 10% rather than up 10%, I would highlight that as an assumption we're having a savings there. Or on the flip side, like this year, the budget assumptions, it's saying there's a 17% increase in healthcare. Now, the, the board of directors members don't necessarily see all of those actual increases. They say only the final number in each category. But, you know, when I first started out in the parish, budgeting went a little something like this. We got last year's budget. We looked at what this year's projections were going to be. Oh, we spent 500 on electricity. Let's add 20 bucks. We're going to spend 520 next year. That was completely and utterly irresponsible. And one year, I think it was back in 20, well, it was 2008, 09, after the financial collapse of the housing market, there was a projection in about this time of year, September, October, where there was a, a prediction that the energy costs for the winter were going to be 20 to 30% higher because of supply and some other issues. So that year, I took that newspaper article with me to the budget meeting. And when they came around and they did the standard Lutheran thing, you know, last year we spent 500, this year we're, I said, no, 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 no. We're going to add at least 30% to our current budget to reflect what they're saying is the prediction. And so I think councils, pastors need to understand some of these financial terms because they have impact on the budget. They have impact on how things are are operating. I use the example in the book in, in 2022, Home Depot during the pandemic had superseded all other big box chain home goods stores. And for one reason, Lowe's, all these other stores did not take into consideration a $5 a gallon gasoline price. And Home Depot predicted it in the sense of they budgeted for a much higher gas cost for their transportation. And so while everything else could be equal, Home Depot exceeded the rest of their competitors and was profitable because they budgeted a higher gas valuation. And again, for congregations, the two examples I've given you, you know, heating and in, in, in electricity costs, and then of course, gas costs from Home Depot. These two things can be make or break for congregations. I mean, if you have a $150,000 budget, and you miss your electric costs by 30%, and you got the old school boilers where you're spending you know, natural gas to heat these boilers, and you're spending $10,000 a year, that's a three grand increase to your, you know, I mean, you start looking at these things, and they can be life and death for small congregations. So I, I mean, to your question, it, I think it's exceedingly important for congregations to have at least a working knowledge of these financial terms. For someone who studied theology, <laughs> those terms and just these concepts alone might be very intimidating. It sounds like you need to have a, 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 a an education in business or business administration. <laughs> Do you have to have an MBA to be a pastoral no. leader? No, I, and this is this is exactly the point, Andy. This is this is why this chapter is important in the book. The very basic, rudimentary—I don't know—thirty pages that I write about in this book really is the totality and sum of what a pastor really needs to have knowledge of. And the examples I use in this chapter are just—they're just examples to get people comfortable. Now, you talk about—you know—theologians are trained on theology. I can give you offhand at least five financial, biblical, theological parables, stories, examples where the theology 
of the point is actually financial. You know, I mean, look at this, the feeding of the 5,000, for example. Jesus fed 5,000 with a boy's lunch. I mean, let's not, let's not skip past that. A boy's lunch in today's realm, seven to $10, fed 5,000 men plus women and children with 12 baskets left over. Okay. You say to yourself, the miracle there is Jesus feeding the 5,000, which it certainly is. But the numerical financial thing is he did it with the boy's lunch. He did it with the most basic rudimentary financial wherewithal. Now, if you come try to take my lunch, that's going to be a problem. You see what I mean? <laughs> but this boy was this boy was joyful to give Jesus his lunch. So I actually think that when you really get deep into these things, what you find is having a financial understanding, or I should say more precisely, a numerical understanding, is actually a a deep theological principle. And so while I don't think the seminary has time to teach these principles, that's why pastors need to educate themselves, if for no other reason, to have a basic rudimentary understanding of what a balance sheet is, what cash flow is, what return on investment is. These are just rudimentary things. And so while I don't think you need an MBA, I think you need to spend some time at least familiarizing yourself with it, because day one, I walked into the parish. December 17th, I was installed. My first church service was Christmas Eve. I walked into a budgeting cycle, and I had to have at least a working knowledge of what is a what is a, bal- or a budget. What is a budget? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, to be able to work with that church council, to be able to to use the resources that you have in a in a healthy and faithful way. I mean, that that's a very important thing for a church of any size to be able to do, even if finances aren't your thing in these terms might make your eyes gloss over a little. I, I see I'm in that camp. I see how this is important for leaders to understand and to know in order to, to be faithful in what they've been given. It's, it's very important. What about complacency though? How does laziness, complacency, how do those really negatively impact a congregation? Yeah, I mean, go, this is a good question because going back to what Andy said about, you know, theology a pastor's trained for, I actually think it's laziness for a pastor not to have at least some working knowledge of financial understandings and, and whatnot. Look, if if you tell me you get excited to read CFW Walther, I'm going to tell you 15 minutes watching a show like Squawk Box at six o'clock in the morning that's talking about the markets and at least where the trends of, of energy costs are going to go, is not a waste of your time. You, you see what I mean? And to just brush it off and say that that's the lay people's job. It might be the lay people's job in terms of president, vice president, secretary, treasurer to, to contribute. But every congregation looks to their pastor to have at least input on these things. And I'm going to tell you something. Every congregation I've gone into that has great conflict, it starts with a pastor who sits at meetings and is simply present physically, but not present emotionally or psychologically. And the reason is because people expect the pastor to contribute. They don't have to be an expert in any or all of the areas, but congregation members expect the pastor to contribute. So you mentioned that in those situations that quite often there was conflict. How does a pastoral leader address conflict then concerning budget or financial matters? Well, yeah, this is a tight world, right? I mean, because the pastor generally in most small congregations is 70 to 80 percent of a congregation's budget. Mm. And so here you are as the pastor sitting in a meeting 
And again, let's use the $150,000 to $200,000 budget. And again, $125,000 to $150,000 is is allocated for, quote, unquote, the pastoral office. I mean, you're going to have insurance. You're going to have retirement. Those aren't all cash contributions the pastor receives in his pocket, but it's a cost to the congregation. And this even happened to me in my early ministry. You know, you sit in these meetings and things are tight. Uh, offerings aren't coming in. And the the easiest slash only place to, to make savings is under the pastoral compensation. So what a, what do congregations tend to do? They tend to take a least expensive insurance plan, which is a higher out-of-pocket deductible plan for the pastor. They tend not to participate in the 403B supplemental retirement program, which long-term could be the difference between a pastor living in retirement peacefully or having to continually work. I mean, these are the kind of things. And so what does the pastor do in those things? I always take the approach that it's not about me when I deal with the pastor in a congregation. It's about the congregation's commitment to having a pastor. If you want a pastor, it costs money. And for people to simply say, well, let's cut the pastor's salary because we're having a problem, that's not the solution. I mean, I, I have a firm commitment when I when I'm in the parish with my people, that when you pass a budget, it's a covenant, meaning you are promising to contribute to make this budget successful. So it's a fine line that pastors walk, but I always encourage guys to make sure that they make the point not about themselves, but about the covenant that's made in the process. And the congregation commits to, in the installation right, taking care of a pastor and his family financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually. So, Any other points you'd like to make about financial matters and why they're important as we wrap up our time together today? Yeah, I guess the last thing I would say is pastors must contribute financially to their ministry. One of the, in my opinion, one of the most single greatest failures that a pastor can make is saying that his service to the church is his stewardship to the church. That is the biggest farce. It is the biggest misapplication to biblical stewardship. I had a pastor say to me one time, I don't give money to my own church because my time is my stewardship. That is garbage. That is absolutely not a biblical principle of stewardship. And so pastors who don't contribute financially in a steward way to their own ministry— I think are failing in their job as pastor. It's very harsh for me to say that, but I want you to know that I, I believe this is the biblical standard. You can't say that you're going to emphasize your time when you expect your people to give their treasures. You see what I mean? Because you also expect your people to give their time and their talents as well as their treasures. Why is that application not equal for pastors? And so that would be one thing that I would say and I would also finally just conclude by saying stewardship is simply a lifestyle. It's not a response. Stewardship, time, talents, and treasures is what you do in a totality of your Christian faith, not in a response to any one situation. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Jameson Hardy, Bishop of the English District, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and author of Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People from Concordia Publishing House. Pastor Hardy, thanks so much for being our guest today. Good to be with you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. 
The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.